Hi, I'm Erin Barnes, and this is Inside College Admissions, a podcast presented by SCORE. On today's episode, I sit down with strategic advisor to SCORE, Peter Van Buskirk, to discuss college rankings. We'll discuss when and why college rankings got their start, how college rankings come to arrive at a measure of quality, how that measure of quality affects the culture of higher education, and much more. But before we get started, let me provide you with some background on Peter and the great work he does with SCORE. Peter is an industry analyst, student advocate, author, speaker, and workshop leader. He brings over 25 years' experience in the college admissions process, including 12 years as Dean of Admission at Franklin and Marshall College. Peter also founded his company, Best College Fit, to bring transparency to the college admission process and help students position themselves to achieve their educational goals. Without further ado, I'll kick it over to Peter. Well, it seems like they've been around forever, but in fact, the, the first evidence of college rankings began to appear in, in 1983 when U.S. News and World Report came out with its first uh, uh, guide to selective colleges. And I think it's important to understand the time period because that was a point in time when consumerism had really taken hold of the population and almost every household had a consumer's guide of some sort in the home in order to, to assist with purchasing things like refrigerators and washers and dryers and cars. So before we buy, let's check consumers report to see which is the quote unquote best. Um, and that I think gave some uh, genesis to the U.S. News and World Report uh, concept. Frankly, the magazine, U.S. News and World Report, was a failing magazine at that time. I think that's universally accepted. Uh, and But there were some pretty smart editors who thought, well, gee, this consumerism thing's important. Um, if, for things that you buy around the house, why not apply this model to the college-going process? Because at the time, it looked like there was going to be a, a significant change in the college-going climate such that it would become a buyer's market. And, you know, a perfect opportunity for uh, a rankings guide for colleges. And, uh, so the very first guide came out in 1983. Subsequently, U.S. News has published a, a rankings guide every year since other, other uh, publications, Time, Newsweek, Money Magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, uh, Princeton Review have come up with, with similar kinds of rankings. But that, that's where it got started. So it seems like a lot of situational, circumstantial factors came together to make the perfect storm here. That was the perfect opportunity for a failing magazine to take advantage of that consumerism culture. You're, you're right. And boy, have they run with it. I mean, not only does that particular magazine or organization produce rankings annually, but they, they have a, a full slate of, of advice articles and podcasts and things that they put out. Some of it's good and some of it fills space, but mm -hmm. <laughs> certainly has become their life raft. Mm -hmm. So we've danced around it a little bit, but let's, let's dive right in. Um, the objective of ranking guides seems to be to arrive at a measure of quality that would legitimize the mythical pecking order, so to speak, of colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. But what, what factors were at play in creating the ranking formulas? Well, I, and I don't have the, the, the whole list of factors in front of me right now, but 
U.S. News looked at, at a range of, of variables in trying to come to some conclusion about quality. Some of them are, are fairly predictable. Let's look at the ratio of students to professors on a college campus. Let's look at the ratio of students to budget on a campus. Let's look at the graduation rate. Metrics that, that presumably would lend some credence to a, a measure of quality. And the, the, the piece that, that came out of uh, that collection of data that had the greatest bearing on people like me in the admission office was let's take a look at the admission rate. What, what percent of students are admitted to the school? What percentage of the students who are admitted will actually come? And, and a whole other list of, of variables of what is the average SAT of those students? What is the GPA? So things like that all came into play. And it was a great mystery for quite a long time how each one of them had a role in arriving at the, the ranking for a particular school. And that, that was a closely guarded secret by U.S. News and World Report for a while until there was a lot of uproar about that. You know, how can we know that this is really accurate, fair, et cetera? So U.S. News started to produce uh, the, the, the actual formula. And uh, interestingly, there are other factors that, that have crept into it, like reputation. I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, but but the the question was, uh, you know, how does this institution's reputation become measured? And uh, a part of the the uh, data collection process there involved doing a survey of individuals on college and university campuses. Each each campus would get a ballot, for example. Uh, three ballots. Uh, one would go to the president, one would go to the academic dean, and one would go to the dean of admission, because who better than those people to provide an assessment of quality across higher education? And uh, on those ballots, we were asked to rate, I was asked to rate on a scale of five to one, all of the schools that were in my, my institution's classification. That worked well for my school, because I knew exactly how I would rate mine, and, and I knew how I wanted to rate my competitors. But the vast majority of the schools, while recognizable by name, were not schools that I felt particularly comfortable rating because I just didn't know them that well. So interestingly, those are the variables that, that came into play. And over time, the, the weighting that was attached to each variable changed on an annual basis. But, but still, that, that's the basic set of information that's, that's being addressed. And here we are some 38 years later. Do you hmm. feel like all of those factors are still a reasonable measure of quality? I'm, I'm hesitating, Aaron, because I, I think that there, there's some value in the data itself. Mm -hmm. when, when you look at the graduation rate at an institution, when you look at the persistence rate from the first to the second year, when you look at the student to professor ratios, there's some real value in that information. But I think that, that when, when we try to pull all of this data together to create a, an objective rating or ranking, if you will, of an institution, that's where it falls short. Mm -hmm. uh, because basically, uh, we're commoditizing higher education. And the, the, the mistake I think we make here is assuming that the ranking that is produced for any institution is a ranking that is relevant to the individual. Mm -hmm. and, uh, this is where it, it gets, the conversation gets a little tricky because in, in my opinion, the best school is not one that's a ranked school, but it's one that meets the criterion of the student. Sure. And, and none of the ranking guides right now presume to know anything about the student. Mm -hmm. So basically, 
they're serving the institutions through this opportunity to provide a ranking mechanism. Colleges love this stuff. And, and a lot of families buy into it because they assume that this must be right. But in my opinion, it's the rankings have actually corrupted the college going process and then turned it away from being something that is student centered to something that is institutionally centered. And playing off of that, that word there, institutionally centered, I think what you touched on earlier was the fact that these rankings have now become engulfed in the reputational aspects and, and reputational ranking of colleges and, and universities. Malcolm Gladwell recently released a, a podcast where he discussed this very subject, reputational rankings of colleges. Um, I know it's an episode that I listened to and that you listened to, and I was wondering if I could, you know, collect your thoughts about his assessment of, of the ranking system. I thought it was a really smart assessment of what's going on right now. And, and frankly, he, he kind of pulled the, the logic string on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. For the listeners, imagine if you were given an opportunity, mom and dad, to rate all of the high schools in your state on a scale of five to one. Now, you, you know how you would probably rate the schools that are within your county, within your conference. You, you know other places by some reputation athletically or otherwise, but by and large, they're unknowns to you. And, and that's the problem we have with the reputational piece. Most of the people, in fact, shortly after it became known that the reputational piece was a, a big part of the, the ranking guys, it, it, it has held a value anywhere from 15 to 25% in the overall weighting of, of variables in the rankings. When, when it became known, Alma College, a little liberal arts college in Michigan did a study of all the voters. One wanted to find out, you know, what do you people know about the schools that you're ranking? And almost three quarters of the voters, people like myself, admitted in that survey that they didn't know much about the schools they were voting on. So here you have the single largest variable in the whole ranking guide being attributed to a a vote, if you will, from people who acknowledge they don't know what they're talking about. And it's just mindless to me that that we could could allow that kind of a ranking to to exist. Uh, Yet, yet, what's happened there is that the institutions, once they figured out that the reputational piece uh, began to spend a lot of money on trying to burnish their reputations. I mean, I, I was at Franklin and Marshall College at the time, and I, I know what it was like at our school. I know what it was like at a lot of other competitor schools. Uh, schools were, were spending a lot of money to develop literature, uh, programs, presentations, things that would feature the, the best elements of, the, of themselves uh, so that they could impress their peers and improve the rankings that they would get among their peers. And that's, it's, it's kind of like the emperor, you know, uh, we're dressing the emperor with clothes that may or may not fit that, that particular place, but it, is, it became a huge distraction. And, and frankly, I think that what Malcolm Gladwell doesn't do is he doesn't go beyond the assessment that, that rankings, uh, that the reputational piece is, is problematic. He, he could perhaps also take a look at how the institution's fixation on rankings has changed the culture of higher education. Mm. Higher education is, is important. I mean, it's as, as an academic and educational opportunity for young people, it's important. But now it's become a very, very competitive business. 
uh, a business where, where primary practice is competing with each other to look good. How can we, how can we as institutions better ourselves relative to our peers? Uh, I may have shared with you in another conversation, a revelation that came to me early on in, in my experience with the, the, the rankings. We had gotten a ranking guys one year and uh, our staff was together with our senior staff and, and looking at, at each of us, looking at the ranking guide, and, and our institution was ranked 27th in the country among national liberal arts colleges. And we're thinking, wow, that's pretty good. But then there's a voice at the end of the table uh, that said, uh, let's hold on a second. Let's take a look at, at, at these, these rankings, numbers 11, 12, 14, 17, 19, and 21 are clearly inferior institutions. Mm. And, and that was kind of jarring because how do you know they're inferior? Clearly, yes. I yeah. think that, I mean, this goes back to what Malcolm Gladwell's talking about. <laughs> Reputationally, in, in our, from our vantage point, uh, through the lens that we saw the world, they weren't as good as we were, but still our ranking was less than theirs. So the voice then says, so what are you gonna do about it? I, I'm wrong. The voice first said, how could that happen? <laughs> and then what are you gonna do about it? As though it, you know, it was our fault. That, that this had happened. But that's when, that's when the job description of the admission officer in particular changed. We went from being the gatekeepers, the people who recruited and selected students to, to people who were managing that part of the business. Yes, we needed to get the class, but you know, it, it was really important that we continue to look good. Um, and the reputational piece, is, it was a big part of it. At a lot of institutions, the, the senior officers would, would take time off, take a retreat to, to figure out how to fill out that, that rating gap, uh, the, the rating of colleges. So it, it kind of turned things upside down and inside out such that we're no longer, rankings have taken the focus off of what makes sense to kids mm -hmm. and put it more on uh, you know, which of these colleges looks best. So I think it's absolutely safe to say that at this point, college rankings seem to benefit institutions more than they benefit the student. I, I believe so. And I, I want to maybe do a carve out on that assessment as well. There are some institutions that have protested and said, this isn't right. It's not fair. It's not, philosophically, we can't agree with this. There are some institutions that have tried to avoid involvement altogether. However, U.S. News in those instances has said, well, you're still gonna be in our guide. Mm. We're gonna make up a number for you, literally. Mm. Uh, and the way they would do that is they would identify peer institutions for that place that doesn't wanna play. And they would look at the aggregate numbers for the peer institutions and develop an average for, from that group and assign that average to the school that doesn't wanna play. And like it or not, you know, you're going to be in our guide. Uh, so the real, the real winner here is U.S. News because they're the ones not only surviving but now making a lot of money off of, of rankings that, that uh, um, as I say, have, have really kind of corrupted the, the process. I apologize if I'm, I'm kind of going off course with your question too, but I think that what, what the public doesn't see is how colleges and universities manage the information that they provide to U.S. News and World Report. For example, I, I mentioned earlier that ratios are considered, student-to-professor mm -hmm. ratio, graduation rate, admit rate, all of that information 
is theoretically an you know objective set of data, but it's it's man, manipulated by the institutions before it's sent in. For example, let's suppose an institution is is concerned about its student to professor ratio, and you know on paper that that ratio looks like it's uh, now twelve to one, twelve students to every professor, and and we're thinking, well, that's not too bad. And then you look at your peer institutions, and your peer institutions are saying eight to one, nine to one. And you're thinking, well, we've got to improve our student to professor ratio. How do you do that? You're not going to go out and hire more professors. You're not going to reduce the size of your student body. So maybe you take a look at how you've been counting. Uh, for example, or should we be counting in our student body all of the students who might be studying abroad? Because they're not on campus right now. Or the students who might be doing a Washington semester, the students who might be on a health leave. They're not on campus, so let's let's adjust our student body count. Oh, and our faculty. Maybe we were counting, we weren't counting enough people there. You know, we we have the professors and the assistants, the associates. Let's make sure we get all the adjuncts. And then there are people, there are people on campus who periodically teach a course. I mean, in my school, our our president had a PhD in French literature, and every once in a while he'd teach a course in French literature. So Got to make sure we include him as well. So interestingly, by, by kind of taking a new look at how we define the data, in this particular instance, a school could reduce its student body for the purposes of this count by 10%, literally. And it could increase the size of its faculty by 10%. And just by snapping the fingers, we have a new student to professor ratio. And this That's kind of- absurd. That's absurd. But it, it, it happens every year. It happens every year as colleges and universities try to manage the information they provide. That's how uh, one of the reasons that the rankings change is not because colleges or universities change in any measurable way year to year, it's because their data changes. And, and I think I've just come to a realization as you were explaining all of that, which is that I take for granted the definition of data, right? I am assuming that the data is well-sourced mm -hmm. and, and vetted and the explanation that you just gave kind of highlights the fact that the data, so to speak, is self-reported and mm -hmm. peer-reviewed. So that's not exactly, you know, lock and key, hard and fast data that we are basing the rankings on. Absolutely not. Well, let me give you another example. Uh, and this is really close to the college going process. The admission rate, percent of students who apply who will be admitted. Mm -hmm. uh, is still something that's, that's a factor in this process. Mm -hmm. Well, admission rate is something that, that can be managed in a number of different ways. Uh, on the surface, you can reduce the number of students admitted out of the overall applicant group by increasing your applicant pool, by decreasing the number of students you admit. And those are things that, that can happen year to year uh, this year, for example, a ton of schools, especially very selective schools, saw incredible increases in applications because they went test optional, which meant that they become even more selective. Does that change the institution in any measurable way? No, but it changed their selectivity. We've talked in other segments about the importance of early decision and early action in the admission process. Well, those are good opportunities for institutions to become more selective. The more they push early decision and get students to commit early, we, we call those students high yield students. We admit one to get one. Mm -hmm. 
the more of those students we get, the fewer regular admission students we need to take. And when I say regular admission, we usually have to admit five or six or seven to get one. So if we can increase our early decision pool measurably, then we reduce maybe by hundreds of students, those that we need to admit in the regular process. As a result, we look like we are more selective, harder to get into, and our ratings go up. So just giving you some examples of how institutions can play with the numbers and play with their processes to, to make sure that the information they report serves them well. So Peter, all of this said, in your experience in higher education, how much do these rankings fluctuate from year to year or are they fairly similar from one year to the next? It's interesting, Aaron. It, I think in a perfect world, if we had a, a, a pure data set, Mm -hmm. pure and consistent data set, there would be no fluctuation in rankings at all. And the ranking guides would go away. Mm -hmm. And this leads us to the final point I want to make. The, the primary reason that the rankings change every year is that because U.S. News and World Report has admitted publicly that every year they change the formula. They, under the guise of wanting to perfect the, the model, they're constantly changing the variables, adding a variable in, taking one out, changing the weight attached. You may recall that I said that the reputational factor has anywhere from a 15 to 25% weight. Mm -hmm. Well, one year it might be weighted at 15%, another year it could be weighted at 22%. You mm -hmm. can see how that will change um, the outcome. So US News, through its own unique formula process, uh, is able to ensure that there will be a different outcome every year. The reality is schools don't change. It, it's not like when you look at uh, the sports page on a Monday morning to see what the basketball rankings are, they change because teams win and teams lose. It doesn't, mm -hmm. happen, it doesn't happen with colleges and universities. They're the same. Mm -hmm. Change on these campuses is glacial in nature. And to presume that, that we can measure change year to year uh, is, is really a really pretty silly. So let's close out on a positive note here. All of this said, this, this really heavy conversation that we just had about college rankings. What, if anything, can students and families glean from the college rankings? And or how do you recommend that students and families gain that valuable information like you mentioned at the start of our call, which is student to teacher ratios and graduation ratios and those pieces of information that might actually make a difference in their college journey. Wow, do we have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> I think that to begin with, there, there's some value in some of the data that is provided. I, I strongly urge families to completely ignore the actual ranking because it's when you, you you look at it at its core, it's an editorial opinion. It is not mm -hmm. a scientific fact. It's an editorial opinion. Mm -hmm. It changes every year, not to improve the student's opportunity to predict well for him or herself, but to sell more magazines. It's, it's all about the advertising. So I think that if a family is going to use the ranking guides, use the data, because there is some, some value in, in the data, even though it might be manipulated to some degree, there's some value in the data. And quite often there are some interesting articles that, that help to, to frame the presentation. So that, there, that can be the case. But I would, I would use that more sort of at the 
end of the process than the beginning of the process. A lot of families will, will say, well, we have to start looking at colleges. Let's get a ranking guide. And okay, we're going to look at the top 25 schools. Well, the flaw in that statement right off the bat is the word top. Because top, top according to who? For whom? Mm -hmm. It might be top according to those editors, but top for your child? Let's talk about your child first. Yeah. And this is why, again, in other segments, we've talked about the importance of that reflective process that families need to begin with the student to, to really focus on fit and then reach out to the institutions. But I, I think the, the, the rankings need to be kept into perspective. We, we cannot buy into these without really understanding what, what they are and how they can affect, in many cases, adversely affect the, the process. There's some interesting data, some useful data, but the best data that is going to be derived from a college going or college planning process comes from the actual research students do of the institutions that make sense to them. Digging into the websites, talking to students, talking to professors, it's there's no shortcut. And, and mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly, at the end of the day, that's that's what ranking guides turn out to be a shortcut to getting from one place to another. And they often take you to the wrong place. Sure. Well, Peter, thank you so much. I think this conversation has been extremely enlightening. As you and I sit here talking, it is August 5th. So within the next month or so, the the rankings will be out and about. It's ranking season. There's going to be a copy on every uh, coffee table. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sad as it is to think about it, but let's, let's keep this focused on students. Absolutely. Peter, thank you again so much for your time today. My pleasure. A special thanks to Peter Van Buskirk for joining us in this conversation today. If you want to hear more from Peter, you can find his content in the blog section of our website and on YouTube where his webinars and presentations are hosted. If you want to learn more about SCORE, go to SCORE.com. That's S-C-O-I-R.com. We'll link to that in the show notes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at SCORE, Inc. That concludes our conversation today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this episode. Thanks so much for listening.